All right. So my name is Rachel, like Alex said, and tonight we're continuing our series talking about Crash Course Theology. Um, if you weren't here last week, Drew talked about the stages of truth. Um, this might not to make total sense if you weren't here, but go back on the podcast and listen to it. It was really, really good. So before we like jump into the theology and the meat of this message, how many of you guys have ever heard the phrase, my whole life is a lie? Raise your hand. Okay, somebody explain who feels confident what situation someone would say this in. They're like, ugh, my whole life is a lie. Somebody explain why somebody might say that. Go for it. Oh, wow. That was so serious. He said, if you're adopted, that was anyone okay. All right, Alyssa, please, anything but that. I'll go lighter. Um, when you figure out the song lyric, is it what you always believe it to be? Yes, yes. Yes, when you find out that the guy from Monopoly never had a monocle. Yes. Wow. Wow. Shocking news. The guy from uh, Monopoly didn't have a monocle. Okay, Austin? Wow, that was my whole lesson right there. Okay, um, so yeah, people say this whenever they find out something that they thought was true, and typically it's like something basic, like you just assume that the Monopoly guy has a monocle, or you just assume that the song lyric is fill in the blank, right? And whenever you figure out that you were wrong about this thing that you assumed, some people say, oh my gosh, my whole life is a lie. So I had a moment like this with um, one of my really good friends, and I won't say your name, but Heather recently, <laughs> she's here, she told me I could tell this story, so this is a vulnerable moment for her. So Heather lived her whole life, up until about two months ago, thinking that Sprite, the soda drink, had caffeine in it. So this is like minor, but all the time, like, it gets to 7 p.m., Heather's like, all right, enough of the Sprite, like, I can't do it anymore, I'm going to be up all night, and we were fasting recently um, in Lent, and we had the week for caffeine, and Heather's like, I just miss Sprite so much, <laughs> and I was like, what, why? She was like, well, I'm fasting from caffeine, and I was like, still not getting it, but so she, I, I was there <laughs> for this moment, I was able to break the news, like, Heather, I'm so sorry, but. Sprite actually doesn't have caffeine in it. And she said that. She said, oh my gosh, my whole life is a lie. Which is not true. Like, not everything in Heather's life was based on the fact that she thought that Sprite had caffeine in it. But it's, it's kind of this exaggeration of we think something's true, we assume something's true, we don't drink Sprite past 7 p.m. because we think it has caffeine in it. We, we make choices um, that are based on our beliefs. And those things have consequences, and that's why we're talking about theology. That's why we're talking about what is truth and how can we know it, because the things we believe have consequences in our lives, um, especially these really core ones. So tonight we're talking about how God speaks. So last week we talked about um, the stages of truth and kind of how we um, think about truth and experience truth. Um, and tonight we're talking about how God speaks. So God speaks in three primary ways. Number one is his word, the Bible. Number two is his people. And number three is his spirit. So spoiler alert, we are going to spend almost all of our time tonight talking about the Bible because it's the primary way in which God speaks. So for example, I'm a Christian, so I'm part of the people of God. 
But the only way to know if I'm speaking what God would say is to match up what I say with the Bible. So if I say something like, Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then you would match it up with the Bible and you'd say, okay, that's not from God. That's, even though Rachel's a Christian, that's not from God because the Bible is our standard. And the same thing with the Spirit. We match up what we're hearing from the Spirit with the Word of God. So that's why we're going to spend most of our time talking about the Bible. And we're going to ha- have to answer these two big questions tonight. And depending on the way that you answer these, there's going to be big implications for how we live and the choices that we make in life. So I already claimed that the Bible is how God speaks to us, and that is the first question. Is the Bible actually God's word? So I don't know if you know this, but the Bible is not the only book that claims to be divine. Um, It's not the only one that claims to be from God. Uh, Islam has the Quran. Quran. Uh, Mormons have the Book of Mormon. Hinduism largely refers to a book called the Gita. That's like shorthand for it. I can't pronounce the full one. Um, And we have the Bible. And we all claim that our holy books, our scriptures, our religious books are from God. And that's a pretty big claim to say that this book that I'm holding in my hand is from God, the supreme ruler of the universe. And even though these different religions have different ideas about who God is and what he's like, at some level he is this supreme power. And so to say that we have a book that is from God is a big claim. And if he is at some level in control of things and is sovereignly over things, it's important for us to know what he says about life, what his expectations are for us, because those things have consequences. And if it's not from God, if the religious books that we have are not from God and they're just from, I don't know, some guy named Paul who just decided to write up his thoughts to a bunch of Romans about the best way to live, then like that has no bearing on my life. For example, I could just say, okay, it's a crime to wear pink in the United States. I could say that. But that has no bearing on your life. If you wear pink, Jace is wearing pink right now, she's not going to get arrested because I don't have any authority. I'm not in charge of this country, thank goodness, and I have no control over the laws. Um, and so, in the same way, if the book, the holy books, are not actually from God, they don't have any bearing on my life. But if it is from God, then it has a lot to say about how I live my life because of who God is. So, that's why we care if the Bible is from God, but we still haven't answered why I claimed that the Bible is from God. Does it have the power of God? So, I already told you that a dude named Paul wrote a book of Romans. And you may have heard about other biblical authors like Moses or Luke, James, Peter. All of these people wrote books of the Bible. So how can we say that this book is from God if it was written by people like Paul and Moses? How do those things work together? So here's how. Your first key term is inspiration. This is not like inspiration like I was walking by OSU's beautiful campus and I was inspired to write a poem or to write the alma mater song. I assume that's how that happened. I don't really know. Um, But when we say inspiration, what we mean is that God's words were given to human authors by the Holy Spirit. So this is how we can say that the Bible is from God because 
God's words were given to human authors by the Holy Spirit. So this definition is important, and you may be nodding your head like, yes, I think I'm on board with you so far. But this is also kind of a vague definition, and this leaves a lot of room um, for questions. And so there's actually a spectrum of what people believe about inspiration. So on one hand, we have all God and no man. So this would be like if God just spoke and like words just appeared and now this is that. And there's no human involved, which I already said humans are involved. So you can guess it's not that. At least that's not what I believe. <laughs> um, then over here we have no God, as in God's involvement, and all man. So this is the spectrum that exists for inspiration. So there's differing views of whether it was mostly God who's like taking over and he's dictating to Paul and then Paul just like copies and pastes from his mind onto the scrolls or whether it's like, well, it's mostly Paul, like mostly just Paul's thoughts. So we probably line up around here. So we really believe that God is involved in inspiring his word <clears throat> and we believe that humans are involved because they wrote these things. And so we believe that God is in charge of that process, but not to the dictation amount. So there's like books and books, and I've read some of them, but not all of them. And books and articles and podcasts about this spectrum of inspiration. And it's important to know that there are lots of different positions of how exactly God inspired authors. Did he just say, okay, Paul, here's exactly what you're going to say, um, or was it, like we said, all Paul? Um, but I think this illustration is helpful. This guy named Andrew Wilson wrote this book called Unbreakable, What the Son of God, Jesus, Says About the Word of God. It's really helpful. It's one of the resources at the bottom of your page. And he gave this illustration when talking about inspiration. So who here knows who Louis Armstrong is? Raise your hand if you do. You cultured people. Um, <laughs> Louis Armstrong is a really famous um, musician, jazz player, trumpeter. I think he also sang, maybe. Um, and essentially, he has, like, he has so much skill. Like trumpeters, like Louis Armstrong's at the top. And I want you to imagine that Louis Armstrong has 10 different instruments. Maybe they're all trumpets. Maybe it's like other than trumpets, I'm trying to think of another, a flute. <laughs> I don't know if that translates. Um, clearly, I have no band background. Um, but if he takes all these different instruments and he's playing all these different instruments, they all have a little bit of a different bent, a different sound. They have a little bit different tone. And although there are different instruments, it's the trumpet player who's breathing the melody, who's in charge of making sure that what comes out of the trumpet is right. It's not the trumpet who is determining whether it's right, but it is the player. So when we talk about God breathing scripture and using human authors to do it, that's what we're talking about, is that these men have different personalities. Paul has different personality, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different historical contexts, different times in which they're living. And so 
that shows up in scripture. If you've ever read Genesis versus Psalms versus Romans, it's like, okay, yeah, different people wrote this. Like, this is a different style of literature. This sounds different. The way they're talking is different. Um, different times, like historical times, those all show up. And so we recognize that. That's what the spectrum is. And this is what this point, I don't, it's kind of arbitrary here, but that's what we recognize with inspiration is that God uses human authors um, to give us the word of God. So somebody look up 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. We're going to read it. And since we're talking about the Bible, I figured we should probably look it up. I could read it for you. But whoever's got it, read it loud and proud. Do it. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Cool. Thanks, JC. So essentially what this passage is saying is that it was not all these dudes who were just like, I'm just going to share my thoughts and I'm going to say that it's from God. What this is saying is that they weren't just acting of their own volition and their own power, their own cleverness or their own wit, but that it was God, the Holy Spirit, who was carrying them along. So this is our claim to the Bible being divine. And there's a lot of different reasons. These can be fleshed out more. But one of the reasons we believe that the Bible is divine, that it's from God, is that it claims it's from God. That is not the ending point. We don't just say, well, it says that it's from God, so like I'm good. Because the Book of Mormon also says that. So that alone is not enough reason, but it is important to know what the Bible says about itself. We know that Jesus affirmed the scripture, and if Jesus beat death, I believe that he was raised to life, that he's God, then what Jesus has to say about the word of God has bearing on my life, and that matters. We also see that across all these books, 66 books, that it's all telling one story. And from Genesis to Revelation is about 1,500 years there's authors writing in three different languages across three different continents. There's 40 authors, and all of them are pointing to the same God who's consistent, the same story. And that would be like the most impossible thing to pull off um, because it would be really divided. Like, I don't know if you guys have been on social media recently, but we can't agree on much, much less like 1,500 years across all of these things. There's no way that we could make all of our stories line up. And so all of those things point to the Bible being from God and that it has the power of God. So that's our first question. Is the Bible from God? So our answer would be, yes, the Bible is from God because of inspiration. And remember, there's a spectrum here. So the second question that we need to ask is, if this is from God and has the power of God, but he used human authors... How can we be sure that it's true? How can we be sure that we can trust the Bible? So the term, the second term that you have is inerrancy. So if you've heard of this term, you might have some different feelings about it. If you've not heard of this term, that's awesome. That's much better. Um, so inerrancy is just simply a belief that the Bible is true in all the things that it teaches and affirms. 
So we have inspiration, that God's words were given to human authors, and then we have inerrancy, the belief that the Bible is true in all it teaches and affirms. So the Bible itself speaks to this belief that the Bible is true. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, I'll read this one. It says, But as for you, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know that those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the, whole, the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God, which is what we just talked about, and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, that would be us, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when we ask, is the Bible true, we really end up back at inspiration. If it's from God, we trust that God is the source of truth, and so we believe that it's true. But when we're talking about the human authors part, this is where it gets complicated. So I grew up in a believing household. Both my parents are believers. I'm really grateful for that. And so when they told me the Bible's true when I was five, I was like, alrighty, I'm going to base my life on it. That's enough for me. Like, it was like, we're going to school. Actually, I didn't go to school. I was homeschooled. That was a terrible illustration. <laughs> it was like, you're going to get up and do school. Um, it was like, the Bible's true, and this is what we're having for lunch. And it was like, this is so simple, and this is how I'm going to live my life, based on these things that are true. And I have to tell you that today, I still believe that the Bible is true in all the things that it teaches and affirms, but it's more complicated than that. And that's what I've realized. And so when we come to these moments where we believe something and we hold something to be true, and then we find out that it's more complicated, there's this rub that happens. And we kind of have this choice whether we're like, all right, no, I'm not going to deal with that. That, because if this starts to unravel, everything's going to unravel. But we also have this choice to say, okay, this seems more complicated. I think I'm going to step into it a little bit. And we're going to wade in, and we'll see how this goes. So that's what I'm asking you to do as we talk about these things. Because inerrancy is kind of deep waters. There's a lot of different things, and we're just going to scratch the surface. Um, but it matters because, if I'm honest, I don't want to get to the end of my life and have based my life on the Bible and say what Heather said. My whole life is a lie. That I based my life on something that's not true. I don't want to do that. And so our questions and our answers about inerrancy really do matter. So I'm going to give you kind of, again, there's a spectrum of beliefs about inerrancy, but I'm going to kind of give you three categories of what some people believe about inerrancy and some of the ones that you might run into in conversation, some of the things that have come up as I've been studying. So one view about inerrancy is that the Bible is true in the things that it teaches about doctrine, things about faith, like the really like big, big things that we would say are like doctrines that we will not give up, but not necessarily true when it comes to like historical things. Like, was there actually a flood and a guy survived by building an ark? Or did God actually allow this to happen, this thing in the Old Testament that feels like, okay, that, I don't know if that's true. And Essentially, it, it sounds good, like, on the surface, right? Like, I want to be right and uh, trust that what the Bible says about God's truth and his justice, 
those doctrinal issues, that those are true, but those categories actually aren't that clean. When we talk about historical claims or um, things that are like verifiable versus doctrinal things, it's harder to verify, like, is God just? Like, how would I go about using the scientific method to determine if God is just? Like, those things aren't in the same category. And whenever we try to divide up doctrine and the historical accuracy of the Bible, it, it actually doesn't work. So, for example, we'll just go right to the biggest one. If the Bible says, doctrinally, that Jesus has power over death, but we're not totally sure, historically, if Jesus physically died and then was raised to life, like, that's a big problem. We can't say that Jesus has power over death if we're not sure on the historical part if Jesus actually died and was raised to life. And so those things are harder to separate out than they seem, oh, doctrine and historical accuracy. Those things are actually tied together more than we might think. So that's one of the issues with that view about inerrancy. So another view of inerrancy is that because God used human authors, that because of our sinful nature, human authors tainted it as we wrote as they wrote it down. I didn't write it down. Um, with their own perspectives and context. I mean, Paul, after all, is he's in the culture of the Romans, and he's a sinful guy. So, like, how do we know that what God said actually made it through all the way to what we have here? And this is important. We need to deal with the fact that human authors were involved but just because we have the capacity to make mistakes as humans doesn't mean that we always are making mistakes. Like, I have the capacity to say that my shirt is blue. That would be an error. But I also have the capacity to say that my shirt is red, which would be a truthful statement. So just because humans were involved doesn't necessarily mean that there's errors on the surface whenever we, we talk about this view. I also think it's important to remember when we talk about human authors that we remember that we're still talking about inspiration. And God, his power is the one who's at work um, in getting this word to us. And so I really believe that if God is trying to communicate with us, nothing will get in his way. Um, so those are some things that if you have that view, if we take that view, we need to think about. So the third one, this is the one you might guess that this is the one that I land in. Um, and it's that the Bible is true in all the things it teaches and affirms. So I would agree with inerrancy. But our copy of the Bible, this one that I have, isn't error-free. So I hope you just felt the tension, because I did. Uh, that, this is what I have felt. This is the position that I'm going to take. And you feel that, like, that little rub of like, what are you saying? Are you saying that this that I'm basing my life on, or thinking about basing my life on, has errors. What are you talking about? This is the rub. So, when we talk about our copy of the Bible, this is not the original. This is not what Paul wrote it on. I think we can all recognize that. But I didn't know this until a couple years ago. We actually don't have the original manuscripts from these authors. So when I found that out, there was a major rub for me. I was like, what? I thought we were just taking the originals from like Moses and we were just like putting it through Google Translate and now this is mine, 
right? Like that's what I just was assuming. I didn't know any, any different. And it's actually not the case. So if you're feeling a little bit of the rub, that's okay. We actually don't have the original manuscripts for a lot of things. Um, but what we have is these other manuscripts that aren't the originals, but they're called artifacts. Jim Johnson told me that word. That word. It's very fancy. Artifacts. You can use that next time you're at Thanksgiving or something. Um, and so these are manuscripts that are copies of the original. They're not the original, but they're really they're much closer than this copy of the original. If this is the original, they're like much closer versus this copy would be over here as far as time and languages. So, for example, who has heard of the Iliad? You can put your hand up if you went to English class, they told you about it, even if you don't know about it. Um, the Iliad is this novel book, long, it's very long, I've never written, read it, um, but it's written by this Greek named Homer. So we don't have the original book that Homer meticulously wrote in Greek, but we do have eight artifacts, eight manuscripts that are copies of what he wrote. So we trust, like, oh yeah, Homer wrote that. Like, we have eight copies that, of this, and so, yes, we trust that Homer wrote that. By contrast, this is wild. I found this out this morning, and I had to put it in. We have 28,000, I think that's right, is that right? It's close, it's in the thousands, it's in the 20,000s. We have that many artifacts of just the New Testament. Like, not all of this. Like, the New Testament is the smaller part. And we have 26 to 28,000 artifacts. So that's like eight for Homer, and we're all like, yeah, we're good. We know Homer wrote it. And then we have 26 to 28,000 um, artifacts. And so those are copies of copies of copies. And we're not denying that over copying all these things that there aren't going to be variations, right? There's variations when you copy and you copy. But we want to be honest about those things. And the people who are doing the translating, they don't put it through Google Translate. Just, it's like people devote their lives to translating the Bible. It's not Google Translate. Um, and they want to be upfront with us about where there are variations. So these variations, though, it's not like, well, one guy said Jesus did raise from the grave, and the other guy's like, no, he didn't. Those are not the type of variations we're talking about. It's not like, was Moses a person or not? The variation is, was it spelled like this or like this? Was the grammar like this or was it flipped? And so if you have a Bible that has footnotes, it tells you all of the times that there are variations in the text, textual variants. Um, and they're not related to doctrine. But we, we have to be honest about where our copies have variations, and one of the bigger ones of these that we're actually going to be talking about, if you come to Sunnybrook, this is a shameless plug, to come on Sunday, um, Jim is going to be talking through the text of John 7, 53, I think through 8, 11. And if you go in your Bible, it has this little bracketed text above where that starts, and it says, the earliest manuscripts did not contain this section. So it's pretty clearly bracketed. And that's the scholar saying, like, hey, this was not in the oldest ones we have for the Gospel of John, but it did show up a little bit later, and so we're, we're not totally sure. So we're going to tell you. Now we have to work through that. And so we're going to do that on Sunday, and Jim's going to do a great job, so you should come. Um, so we recognize when we talk about inerrancy, it's not so simple. 
It's not just like the Bible's true, good to go. We have to explain what do we what do we mean when we say that the Bible is true. And we recognize that with humans being involved, we have limited understanding, right? Like our technological understanding alone has grown so much in the past 2000 years. Like we know things like the earth isn't flat. Like we thought that that was true. If you're a flat earther, I'm so sorry. Um, we know that the earth is round, right? And that, they didn't know that when they were writing the Bible. So we recognize that humans have a limited understanding, but that doesn't make what they wrote untrue. So, for example, if you read Genesis, there's a part that says the waters that were over the earth. And they, they had this idea of, like, if water is coming down there must be a lot of water up there, which would be like a body of water. And if I hadn't taken like earth science, I would agree with them because I wouldn't have known any better. And so when they talk about the waters over the earth, that's their understanding, right? And that understanding, that limited understanding, that doesn't inhibit it being true. They're talking about rain. We know they're talking about rain. We know they're talking about the sky. So just because the human authors had a limited understanding doesn't necessarily mean that it's untrue. What it does mean about the Bible being written in specific contexts is that there's more work for us to do the farther away we are from that context that it was written in. So if I don't know that that was the belief that there's a body of water above the, the sky, I'm going to be like, what are they talking about? Like, this does not make any sense to me. And so when we're interpreting what the Bible says, we believe that's true and we're interpreting it, it means that there's more work for us to do. And that's actually what we're going to talk about next week. Scott's going to talk about another fancy word, hermeneutics, which is just how we interpret the Bible. Okay? So I've given you, like, lots of fancy words to just try out here. Um, but... There's work to be done on the interpreting side, and just because we believe that the Bible's true doesn't always ensure that we're going to have the right interpretation. So those things are definitely connected. We want to interpret something that's true, but we also have to do the right work on the interpretive side. So we'll get to that next week. But at this point, I don't know if you're like, oh my gosh, that was so many things about inspiration and about inerrancy. Um, that's how I was feeling as I was prepping for this is like, this is a lot. And I'm feeling a little bit of the rub of like, I just thought like the Bible's true. Like I'm good. Don't really need to like flesh it out. And now I'm thinking about like human authors and historical context and all these things. Like, can I trust the Bible? These are big questions. Um, and so I'm going to take a break from talking for you have a second, um, to process. So there's some discussion questions. And the first one I want you to talk about is how you're just feeling right now when, you, when there's this rub of, okay, I thought it was simple, or maybe for you it's like, I totally agreed with the first view that you were talking about. And so for you to say that the Bible is true, including the historical things, like, I'm feeling a rub. Um, so I want you to talk through what your response is when you start to feel the rub of when things aren't as simple as you thought they are. And then there's also another question about what it changes in how we approach the Bible if what we talked about, that the Bible is inspired by God, so it's from God, and if it's fully true, which is the inerrancy we just talked about. How does that change 
how we approach the Bible, and we're going to flesh that out in the second half. So take a second, discuss with the people who are around you. All right. Start wrapping it up. We'll have a little bit more time at the end to walk through some things if you guys have more things to discuss. So when we talk about these things, I don't know, maybe you guys were like, no, I feel so good. I'm not breathing hard. My brain is fine. But when I was working through these things, I was like, all right. I got to like take a second because it's just it's just more complicated than I thought it was. And that doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that there's a little more work to be done. There's a little bit of tension to feel. And it's okay that it's complicated. It's okay that there's even like a spectrum of these things and that there's different theories that we can work through um and teasing these things out more. But what we really do have to recognize is like what we started with at the beginning that our actions follow our beliefs. Our beliefs have consequences. And so it's worth working through these things. And we also need to know what we're going to give up if we start to slide in different directions. So with inerrancy, I thought I had it written up, I don't. Inerrancy, if the Bible is not fully true in what it says, we need to think about what does that mean? What are the implications for me? And I think I can say this with confidence because I I've walked through it with people in my own life that whenever we give up that the Bible is true what can happen is instead of the Bible sitting over us because it's from God actually we sit over the Bible because if it's not all true who gets to decide what's true and what's not true it would be whoever's reading it right whoever is interpreting it and I think what can happen is that the parts that we i don't even want to say like but i think that it's it's like what parts of this seem right to me what parts of um something that god did or a story it's like this is from god like this is good this is right and i want to live my life according to that like i really love the parts about loving our neighbor about justice about caring for the poor that i can be redeemed i know that i'm broken Uh, but I really I love the truth that I could be redeemed, and so if the Bible's not all true, I would keep those for sure. I would say like these things seem to me like they're true, and the parts that I don't necessarily like, or the parts that are more difficult to understand, whether those things are about judgment or the existence of hell, or the fact that I'm a sinner, that I need to be saved. um that sex is only for marriage like okay that's less fun like there's a little there's some rub happening for me with those things and if the bible's not all true i would not i would throw those because those are harder things for me there's more of a rub there and so it's important for us to recognize inerrancy is not just like let's talk about some fun theological concept like get our brains going. Like these things have real implications because if it's not all true, we kind of get to decide what's true and at that point like it's less about this and more about me. But if it is true 
And I think that it is, that the Bible's true and that it's from God. It has big implications because it has authority. So the authority is the last term. And authority means having the right to compel submission. So you're like, great. That provided no clarity. Um, <laughs> I'm going to work it through with an illustration. So I'm going to make a confession, first of all. Hopefully this doesn't go anywhere where I could, like, this could be in court somewhere. But I regularly go five to six mile an hour over the speed limit. So if you are like me, don't say anything because we might be implicating ourselves. But I, I just do. I... Part of it's because I'm always running late, and that's my own fault, but I just do. And I've recently taken some longer trips, so I've been driving even more than normal. And when you go, when you live on the edge, and you drive five mile an hour faster <laughs> than the speed limit, you gotta watch your back. You are looking for cops all the time, right? You're like, you're looking because I've got my cruise control on. I really have nothing to do. My car's just basically driving itself. So I'm just looking for cops. And there's a lot of cop lookalikes on the road that I have slowed down for. And I'm upset about it. I'm upset about the soccer moms driving around in Ford Explorers, black and white Ford Explorers. Ashton knows what I'm talking about. And they're coming on and you're like, yep. Yep, all right. So you break, right? And you drive past, and it's just Dana taking her kids to school, right? And you're like, I slowed down for nothing. Um, you ever slowed down for, like, a construction truck because it has the lights on top of it? Been there. I've done that. Um, Department of Transportation, it looks very similar to a cop. And it's, like, transportation, like, maybe, maybe they could pull me over. They have lights, right? But... The reason why I pass the car and I realize it's not a cop and I'm like, why did I slow down? Is because whoever that was, taking their kid to their soccer game, has no authority to pull me over. First of all, they don't have any power because they're not the police, right? So the police, in their nature, have the power to enforce laws. So that contributes to authority, so they have power. This is going to work together. It's not going to just be about soccer moms, I promise. So, police have power. They can pull me over, right? Um, but they only have power in so much as they're enforcing the law, right? Like, just because the police have power doesn't mean that they can arrest me for having a pink shirt on. Because that's not a law. So that would be a false... There's nothing that they can convict me on. That would not hold up in court. And so, but whenever I'm going five to six miles an hour of a speed limit... I'm breaking in a law that's real, and I know, I know it's real. <laughs> so, because <laughs> I've been pulled over for it, and they've informed me exactly how far I was going over. So, they have the power, but then they also have the truth of the law behind them. So, they can't pull me over for having a pink shirt, but they for sure can pull me over for going six over anywhere. And so, when we talk about the Bible and why it has authority and what authority means... When we say that the Bible has power, we're saying that it's from God, which is what we talked about with inspiration, right? This is from God, given to human authors. This is our spectrum. And when we say that the Bible is true, what we're talking about is that inerrancy piece that we talked about. And together, those things give something authority. So if one of you guys saw me driving six over, you probably will, Stillwater's not that big, 
you can yell out your window, Rachel, you're going six over, you're breaking the law. And first of all, I won't hear you because I'm always listening to music. And second of all, just because you have the truth doesn't mean that you have any power. You can't pull me over. So, like, that's true that I'm going over. But you don't have any power to pull me over. And if somebody only has power but no truth, that's just abuse. Like, if, if you decide to... Nobody actually knows what a citizen's arrest is, but if you just like somehow overtook my car and you pulled me over and you pulled me over and you're like, I'm arresting you for having a pink shirt on, I would be like, okay, well this is abuse because you don't have any truth to back this up and eventually that won't hold up. In a just, where there's justice, power without truth can't stand for long, even if it does for a little while if I like went to court or something. So when we talk about authority, what we're saying is that something has the right. The police have the right and the ability to pull me over for breaking the law and then have consequences. And I know about those consequences. Um, and the Bible has authority. This is what I'm claiming, is that the Bible has authority. And so what it compels, it doesn't force, the Bible does not force you to obey it, but it compels you to submit to it. And this is where it gets real, real, real fast. Because all of a sudden we're not talking about inerrancy and inspiration, like these concepts. It's like, I'm getting pulled over for going six over, and now I'm paying a ticket, right? Now this goes on my record. And the Bible has a, that level of authority, but like times a million, because the power it has is from God. And so... It's not just that, like, God is this arbitrary, like, you can't wear pink shirts, and then he just put it in the Bible, and it's like, that makes no sense. The guidelines and commands that God has in his words are the, the guidelines to the good life. Jesus said that he has come to bring life and bring life abundantly, the good life to us. That doesn't mean that's going to be easy, but that God doesn't just make arbitrary rules for us to follow and, like, see if you can do this one. Um, these, the things that God has in his word are designed to help us love him. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commands. So we see these things, that Jesus has the authority. He's asking us to submit to him. And so when we talk about these things of how God speaks and what responsibility do I have if God speaks in this way, which I believe he does, both with power and with truth, then I have a decision to make about whether I'm going to submit to what the Bible says. And it really is not easy. Like, I wish I could tell you, if you just believe this and you just submit to it, like, life is going to be easy and it's simple, but it's more complicated than that. That should probably be the title of this. It's more complicated than that, but it's also more life-giving than you think. It's better than you think it ever could be to follow Jesus. But it does mean submitting to him. And so if we really believe these things about the Bible, we have to be able to, one, commit to do the work of interpreting the Bible. You and I need to know what it says. If I'm going to drive over the speed limit, I better know what the law is. I want to know the consequences. Because if I know what the law says, then I have a choice. I can either submit to it or not submit to it, and I know the consequences. And so you and I need to know what's in the Bible, <laughs> because whether or not we submit to it has consequences because of God's power and his truth. And even sometimes when we do the hard interpreting work, there's going to be times when it's like, 
this is still hard. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand, like, I went through the process of interpreting this, and I've come to what I think this text means, and it's not, like, so easy. Like, this is still hard for me to work through. But what this means, if we really believe this about the Bible, that it has authority over us, there's only one of us who can be wrong when we come to the Bible. Um, there's another Rachel, a cooler Rachel. Her name's Rachel Vincent. And she says, when the Bible and I get into an argument, only one of us can be wrong. And what she's assuming is this, that the Bible has authority over her life. And so if she and the Bible conflict and there's a tension, she's going to do the work to figure out what does this mean. But ultimately, only one of us can be wrong. And it's not the Bible because I believe that it's true. So that's, that's why we care about theology, is because these things have implications. And whether or not we choose to submit to the Bible has consequences. And as I have been preparing, I just kept coming back to this. I don't want to get to the end of my life and have set this aside and decided my own way of doing things and get to the end with God and say, my whole life was a lie. Like, I really want to base my life on something that's true, something is actually from God, and that means that I have to submit to it. And it's hard, but it's really, really worth it to follow Jesus. So I'm going to pray over these things because they're wonderful and hard, um, and the Lord knows those things. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for... Um, each person who's here, I thank you for the way that you've made us. I thank you for who you are, that you are faithful, that you are true, that you wanted us to know who you are, that you've revealed yourself in your word, and that we can know you because of it. Father, I thank you for uh, the process, even, of wrestling with hard things that are more complicated than we thought. Father, I pray that we would have the resolve um, and endurance to work through hard things and not just throw everything out um, if it's hard, but that we would not have blind faith, but that we would have a faith that works, that we would work um, to understand who you are and to understand how we should submit to you. I pray that you would give us a humility when we come to these things and a curiosity to ask good questions um, because you're big enough to handle our big questions. Um, so we love you, and it's your name that I pray. Amen. So last thing, if you're like, Rachel, 50 minutes and you going over was not enough for me, and you have questions, we really want to help you work through questions. And so I've got some note cards here. Um, and if you have questions about anything that we talked about, if you're like, where exactly are we on the spectrum? Or what about this? What about this? discrepancy. I've heard about these different things or like what are the Dead Sea Scrolls or when you're talking about original manuscripts like if you have questions about any of those things it could be about anything we talked about tonight or even what Drew talked about last week we want to help you work through those questions so I'm going to leave these up here I'll put some around um, and we're gonna put them where should we put them you can put them, if you fill them out, just write your question. You don't have to write your name unless you want to. Um, you can put them on that table, and we're going to find a way to answer these questions. We might do like a short podcast or a video, um, but we recognize that these are complicated things, and we just scratched the surface, but we really do want to help you work through these things. It's been a really good process for me. So I'm really glad that you guys came tonight, 
Now we can all take a break after you write your question and you can eat Brahms. So please stick around. Please go.